This series, we're going to witness the making of a king, King David, and the journey of his maturity from shepherd boy to king. Maturity in faith, like when I've chatted to different people about this and looked in the Bible, in Ephesians, in the New Testament, it talks about how maturity is not being blown about by the waves of your circumstances, being being battered around. It's this deep-seated, tried and tested, wrestled over and stretched faith, but it's also well-worn and handled with knowledge and skill, which is honed over years. It's continually knowing God better than ever, but knowing how little you really know him because of how awesome and how massive he is. It's taking responsibility. It's taking risks of faith every day with a disciplined heart and a relationship with God that isn't defined by your circumstances, but keeps walking towards Jesus every single day. So we're looking at David not only because he's just really interesting. So interesting fact, the Bible has more pages on David than any other individual except Jesus, obviously. Um, So he's like a big deal. Like his story really goes in depth. Um, He was a shepherd. He was a youngest brother. He was a warrior and a musician. And at one point he was on the run. David was God's chosen king, and he united all the tribes of Israel and ruled over them, and he established Jerusalem as kind of the capital of Israel. So that's like a big deal. Like they all, like Jews and the Israelites in the past would be like, David was amazing. That was the golden age. They were the good times. Um, so these, but through, he had these very humble beginnings through to unprecedented power, and he continued, you can see throughout his story, throughout the Psalms, which he also wrote a good chunk of, he has this continual pace towards God, of following God. He's called a man after God's own heart. So he's a really good example of maturity and faith. So we're going to see the making of this king in great detail and see his growth and his maturity. And then in turn, we get to see how God wants to mature us and our faith. Let's pray before we, um, before we read the Bible together. Jesus, show us what it is to be mature. Use me and use everyone here and use your word today to speak to every single individual sat here today. Show them how you want them to step into and mature in their faith. We want to love you more after today as we learn about you. So Holy Spirit, just have this moment. Have our attention. Amen. Amen. So turn to your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Uh, If you've got a paper Bible, that's slightly preferable because we're going to be looking at this story in the context of the whole thing. So it's more useful to have your paper Bible. But if you don't have your paper Bible with you, there are some scattered around the the room. So grab one of them. Don't let them go to waste. Cheers. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 17. So 1 Samuel is after Judges. And Ruth, and it's before Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament. That's it, you can find it. Uh, The reason it's called 1 Samuel. Oh, yeah, thanks. That's all right, thank you. Very, isn't he he nice? So Samuel, the reason it's called one Samuel and not like one David or something like that is because Samuel was the appointed prophet at that time. So he was the guy who was chosen by God to speak what God was saying to the people. And he was like anointing the king. So he anointed Saul 
who was the first king of Israel, um, who didn't do amazingly. And then he also anointed David, who was the second and the real great king of Israel. Uh, So we're going to come to this story with a wide lens. The Bible is a whole book of books, so it's vital to understand where this story sits in that. And we're just honing in on one tiny episode in the full-blown story of God that we ourselves are part of. So we can't really understand that episode. It's a bit like watching one episode of Friends, like in season seven, and being like, why is everyone sad? They're leaving that apartment. You need to understand where they've come from and where they're going. So that's what we're going to try and do. Old Testament, which is the first part of the Bible, all pre-Jesus, although he's around in the form of of God or or Lord or Yahweh, were in the stories that the Jews also hearken to and learn about God from. Um, So far in the full stretch of history, we're focused on a small, wily nation called Israel, who are God's chosen nation. And Israel is made up of loads of different tribes. And this nation, these tribes, were originally born out of one family, Jacob's family, Oh, have you got the little lineage for me? That's lovely. So yeah, um, who originally stemmed from Abraham. So Abraham is the father of that nation, is the father of that big old family that we get invited into through Jesus. But uh, Abraham, it's dotted line because it's not like Jacob was Abraham's son. There's different generations between them all, but uh, you can read the Bible yourself and find that out. So um, Abraham, due to Jacob's descendants who grow into a nation whilst they live in and are enslaved in Egypt over hundreds of years, step up Moses, who leads the Israelite nation out of Egypt into the promised land with quite a few setbacks along the way. Then once they're in the promised land, this nation, who are really like a collection of tribes because they keep fighting with each other and deciding they're not going to be under the same ruler and all that kind of stuff, they decide to have judges. So they have different judges who are not like other nations who have these kings who are like big tyrants and are exalted and worshipped because that isn't really Israel's thing. Um, Turns out judges thing doesn't work as well as everyone was hoping because they all just keep disobeying God anyway. So um, then the nation are like, do you know what, Samuel to this prophet, we want to have kings. God's like, actually, I'm the one true king, but I get that these guys want to be like everyone else. So I'll pick out some nice kings for them. And that's where we find ourselves today. So Israel is a fractured nation, a collection of tribes under their first king, Saul who has been anointed. So they're pretty much constantly at war with the surrounding nations, Moabites, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, Jebusites, etc. But in particular, Philistines, not a knight, and the Amalekites. So this is like one of many wars with the Philistines. Do you get the picture? Only Peter Bolton gets the picture. (laughs) Lovely, thank you. I was going to say, it's good to know where we're coming at it from. So we're going to dive into the passage now, but I actually want us to settle into it and really live it and feel what it felt like and taste what it tasted like and and what did it actually feel like for the people who were in this, because this isn't just like a, like a, anyway, and this happened in the Bible, and who knows if it's true. This happened. So we like want to grasp it, and we want to grab hold of it, and we want to squeeze everything out of it that we can. Yeah? Yeah, we do. <laughs> oh, my life. You are not going to like this next bit. So what I want you to do is I want you, when it gets to the bit where I say, hold on, hold on, I'm a, cha- I'm a chapter ahead, where it says, he reached the battle, and he reached the army as the camp was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. That's your cue. You are going to shout the war cry. If you feel patronized, 
Get over it. Join in anyway. If you want to get something out of the Bible, you have to put something in. So, can I hear your war cry? That was actually pretty good. I want a little bit more from you because, so what's going to happen is, is if you don't defeat the Philistines, you're going to all be enslaved. Your families will be taken away from you and all of you will probably die if you're not enslaved. This is quite bad and, and quite a dramatic situation. So you're trying to scare them off. So with that in mind, I want to hear your war cry. <laughs> yes, G2. That's so exciting. Right, okay. Uh, let's go in. So uh, I'm just going to have some water and then our story's going to begin. So our story begins with the whole Philistine army, which is like hundreds and thousands of uh, people who are marching to the Israelite border to attack. Hold on. I just really need... You won't get the rest of the passage if I don't do this. Mm. That's every single man of fighting age of the entire nation. It's a lot of people. It isn't just like a merry band. Um, So they go to meet them under the commander of Saul, a king, who is the first ever king of Israel. So let's go to verse 4 of 1 Samuel 17. Thank you. Right, let me pick this up. So a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's a lot. On his feet he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This day I defy the armies of Israel Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now we cut to David, who is too young and unimportant to be fighting in this war. So weirdly, a chapter ago, David was visited by Samuel, the nation's prophet, who was appointed by God. And David, who is the youngest and the least likely of his brother, brothers, never mind everyone else, has been anointed as king, but no one else knows it. So David's anointed as God's chosen king over the whole nation and no one knows because it just happened during his lunch break. And then he has to go back to his rubbish, lowly, unpaid job as a shepherd. But in our story, here's David on another lunch break from work and he's delivering lunch to his tall, strong warrior brothers on the front line. He packs up and he sets off for the front line and he arrives at verse 20. So jump to verse 20 with me. Halfway through, he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with a keeper of supplies and he ran to his brothers and he greeted them. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. 
So David's like, why is everyone afraid of this giant when we have God on our side? Why, can, why is everyone so afraid? Look at the reward that the king is going to give us. And his brother, Eliab, overhears him talking to the other soldiers. And he says, Why have you come down here? David says, can't I even speak? But he's been overheard. And he's sent to Saul as no one else in the entire nation is speaking so bravely or willingly. Jump to verse 32 with me. So David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword around the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't even used to them because he's a boy. I can't go in there to Saul because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. So he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream and he put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling, just his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and he saw that he was only a boy and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it. And it struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> nice one. And the Oscar goes to, um, for many of us, maybe not all, we've come across this concept of David 
and Goliath, and this story in some form, maybe not this exact form, but about small overcoming great, unlikely heroes, overcoming expectations. When have you come across that? Just ponder that for a second. Where have you heard this story before? And who's the hero of this story? I think we always read it as David. Don't we? Who's the hero? It was David. But what I think maturity looks like for us today is to see that David, although he is incredible, he's nothing without God. Maturity means seeing that God is always the hero. God delivers nations. God saves. God wins. Without God, slings and stones don't overcome giants. Without God, shepherd boys don't overcome warriors. God is the hero of the story. And David would be in full agreement with me. And let me tell you why. The reason stems from the beginning of creation itself. Prepare yourself for a potted history of humanity. In the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve are in perfect unity with themselves, the planet, and their God, our God. The world is fruitful and peaceful and flourishing and teeming with life and God's goodness. Everything is as it should be. But there's a tree that God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. Then a talking snake appears. We can discuss why there's a talking snake there another time. But the snake contradicts God and he tells Adam and Eve that the fruit isn't dangerous. It's delicious and it will make them like God. They believe him and they eat the fruit and they and the whole earth are cursed and evil and death cast a shadow over everything that God's created. But, God says, hope is coming. Someone descended from Adam and Eve will crush the snake underfoot and will overcome evil once and for all, although the snake will strike his heel and both will be mutually destroyed in that battle. A few generations later, God speaks to someone else called Judah, who is a descendant of Adam and Eve. And he tells him that this overcomer, this crusher of the snake, will be a king in the line of Judah, a descendant of his. Who else do we know who is a king in the line of Judah? David. David is the first king in the line of Judah. He brings together all the tribes of Israel and he establishes this nation in unity. He's seen as this great king. But is he the one to crush the snake? Is he the one that overcomes death and evil and sin? No, David can't do it. He doesn't even get close because of his own imperfections and humanity. His descendants, king after king after king, are wooed by evil and they destroy each other. The family line of kings actually ends in the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the exile of the whole nation into Babylon. So it's not looking very good for them. But God has reiterated to David, he said to him, that a king descended from him will indeed crush the snake, will overcome death, will overcome sin. But from a line of kings that ended. So who could ever fulfill this role when even the greatest king of Israel, the most faithful to God, David himself, couldn't? Jesus does. Jesus is a descendant of David. You can trace the genealogy uh, in the Bible. Uh, the ultimate true king of Israel is Jesus. He's the king of kings. But again, no one knows it when he arrives. He was born in Bethlehem and, and he's come from humble beginnings, just like David. And through him, we're invited to become God's people rather than those few chosen tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus crushes the snake. 
He overcomes evil and death by taking them to the cross, being struck in the heel, being killed, but then being raised to life, giving you and you and you and you and I the chance to be restored and redeemed and set free from death and evil forever. You might say, well, what, how is this relevant to David? Because David is the precursor to this. He's the foreshadowing. He's the nearly there, not as good version of what Jesus would be, a murky reflection of what God was going to do. God was revealing his plans and his purposes through his people, through faithful guys like David and giving them hope for the future. So this story isn't just a fable or a metaphor. It's not a moral tale of a perfect hero who we're all just going to learn to be more like. I'm not going to stand here and preach to you. Let's all be just more like David. You just get better. You work harder. You be nicer. You be a better Christian. And then God will love you more. Because that isn't how it works. The story isn't a standalone one, but it's in the wide escape of what God's doing in David's life and in our lives. This story tells us that only God can save us. Only God can save you. Not your armor, not your might, not someone else's armor, not even your humility, not your slings or your stones in isolation from God, not armies, not bravery, not family, not love, not being better, trying harder, not optimism, not hope, not experience, not skills, not talent. None of those things will carry you through. Only God can save you. That's why David won, because God won. Not because, oh, he caught everyone off guard and he changed everyone's expectations and the small overcomes the mighty. Don't believe what Malcolm Gladwell tells you. It's actually God who saves, just like he saved David the day before and the day before and the day before, because that's who God is. It's what he does and it's what he says. If we have a look at verse... Uh, it's 32, I'm pretty sure it's around there. Yep, it's 35, there you go, 35 onwards-ish. 37, the Lord who delivered me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The Lord who delivered me at work will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine, is basically what, what David's saying. The Lord who delivered me yesterday will deliver me today. And it's the same for us. The Lord who delivered me from death and destruction when I didn't even know it will, will save me again. The Lord, Jesus himself, who saved me from myself, will save me from myself again. The Lord, who delivered me from burying myself in shame and fear and guilt, will save me again from that. The Lord, who turned my life around from enslavement to people's expectations, to see myself through his eyes instead, will do it again today. The God who forgave me yesterday will forgive me today. And he'll make me new. He did it yesterday. He's going to do it again. I don't know about you, but do you remember that he's not tired or impatient or bored of being your savior? He's not tired of rescuing you. So back in this story, the Israelites have messed up. They've broken the promises made to God endlessly since the beginning of time and unforgivably so. And in this spot, they hadn't learned the error of their ways and they're not sorry, they're not like, oh God, will show up, it'll be fine. And maybe you find yourself in this position of being like, well, God's probably not even gonna show up because I don't really deserve it anyway. I find myself in that position many times every week. But God saves them anyway. He shows up and he throws his weight behind David. 
And can I just note that David does not have magical powers. He does not have a special code word to make God show up. He is using human words like you or I are using. He's praying in the same way as you or I are. His words are full of faith, yes, and his words are really strong. Oh, my life, to stand before a giant and to say, God will deliver us. God will deliver you into our hands. But at the same time, he's just a person. He's not magic. He's not different from you. Just like the prayers that you pray every day. Just like the prayers for healing that you ask for. Just like the prayers for peace that you ask for. That has just as much power. It was God who saved them, not David. David's just the conduit, the instrument. He's just like the sling and the stones were. So I think sometimes we read this story like, I'm David. <laughs> I just, I'm like David and I just need to be more like him and then... God's going to really like me. But David isn't perfect, and he, God doesn't love him any more than he loves you or I. And I think in honesty, if we really want to get more out of this passage, we need to see more of ourselves in Saul and the Israelites. I think some of us here are like the Israelites. Let's look at verse 16 and then 20. Verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening, and he took his stand. Yeah? And then verse 20 as well. Uh, Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. So if you read this really carefully, if you look at the Hebrew, the way that this is phrased in verse 20 I'm talking about is like, they were going out to do the, the battle cry. Like, as usual, they were going out to do the battle cry. Standard. That was their daily task. That's what it's trying to get across. And verse 16, for 40 days. Now, 40 is actually a symbolic number, so it could just be a symbolically long time. But bear in mind, that means it could have been longer. They could have been on the battle lines, not fighting, just watching Goliath come out and challenge them for 40 days, twice a day or more. Every morning, every night, you're in the Israelite army and you get up and you get dressed and your armor up and you summon your energy and your strength for the bloodthirsty battle. It took you long enough to get your war cry together, for crying out loud. And they stride to the battle lines and they're belting out the war cry and hoping today will look different from yesterday. But once again, Goliath comes out and he just laughs at them. He takes his stand, verse 23. If you look at verse 23, uh, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. So, when it, the words in the Hebrew, when it says, took his stand, these words are really strong. This isn't just someone, uh, like, standing before you like this. This is, like, took his stand, the same words are used of, of God um, when he takes his stand against people. So, it's, like, immovable, defiant, blocking the way, stopping you from moving forward. So, every day, the whole army, every single man of fighting age in the nation run away from this guy who's coming out to take a stand, and he's immovable. And then every day, they get back up, and they go back to the front line. Why? Why do, why do you think they keep going back? Why do you think they keep doing the war cry? Why do you even, why even bother when you know that he's going to come back out? After day three, it's pretty obvious he's not just going to be like, oh, fair play, guys, don't worry about it. Like, the, the Philistine commanders aren't going to be like, do you know what, guys? Don't worry about it. If you don't want to send a champion to be slaughtered, we'll just leave it. We'll all just have a fair fight and maybe you'll win. 
He's going to keep coming out day after day. Do you know why I think they keep coming out day after day and going to the battle lines? Do you know why I think the Israelites are doing that? I think every day they're repeating the same old routine and putting a brave face on it in the hope that one day this solution, this one solution will be enough and that the circumstances will change instead of them. I think they're hoping that the circumstances will change and that Goliath will just magically disappear. I think although they've won countless battles through God's power, if you look through the rest of 1 Samuel, for example, they're like, but this is different. This is harder. This just needs to go away. The circumstances are harder. They just need to change because this is harder than all the previous battles. And how many of you guys are facing the same challenge day after day? And when I'm preaching about God saves you, God provides a solution, you're like, Holly, you don't get it. This is different. This is harder. This is harder than last time. God saved me last time. He can't do it this time or I'm not willing to trust him because of it. This one is taking a stand. This one is immovable. You don't understand this is worse than the last one. It's different. My spouse is more difficult than you know. This uni work or this job is harder than it used to be. My boss is much more nasty than the last one. I don't have the self-control or discipline or bravery that I did last time. I don't have the mental health to overcome this. This is harder than the last battle. And so you wake up day after day after day and you drag yourself to the battle lines and you do your war cry, you follow the same strategies, you're wearing the same armour and you're just hoping, fingers crossed, that circumstances might change this time. I think some of us are like the Israelites. And we're just hoping that God's going to change our circumstances. I'm not denying that what you're going through is heartbreakingly hard. But there is another response. One that doesn't require you to be better at everything, but requires you to stop looking at your circumstances and stop looking to escape them and change them, to stop hoping that Goliath doesn't show up today and instead look to the God who does not change. Verse 33, Saul replies, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy and he has been a fighting man from his youth. Let's just pause there. What's highly ironic here is that Saul, who is the king of Israel at this point, powerful, many a victory against this same army under his belt, who has also been, interestingly so, a fighting man from his youth, unlike David, who is said, Saul was said to stand a head taller than all of the men in Israel. If I'm looking for someone to fight a giant in Israel, who are you going to pick? Probably the tallest, most powerful man, interestingly. Even Saul even though he has the same kind of armor, because when he puts it on David, the same words are used as are used for Goliath. So he could be a match for the giant. He is the best equipped, but he too is like, this is different. This is harder. This is where my abilities end, because he's looking at his abilities, not God's. He believes it's all down to him, but he doesn't see that only God can save him. David replies in verse 34, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. God saved me yesterday. 
God saved me last week. God saved me all those years ago. He kept me from harm then and he will do the same now. God has also delivered entire armies into the hands of the other Israelites, like Jonathan, a few chapters earlier, who sneaks into the Philistine camp a few chapters ago, and he decimates his army, just him and like literally one other guy. So David isn't the only recipient of miracles, he's just the only one who remembers them. This isn't saying, God saved you, so you'll never have any problems. Isn't that nice? Because Jesus told us in John 16 that in this world, we will have trouble. And if anything, following him will bring upon more hardship and more trouble. Um, You can look it up. Uh, This isn't saying that God's going to give you a perfect, cushy life and nothing's ever going to go wrong. But God is greater than anything that you're facing right now. He can overcome it. His time. His way. Even if that's At the end of time, when Jesus comes back and he wipes every tear and he heals every sickness and he takes everyone home with him. David still got attacked by lions and bears as an everyday humdrum occurrence. God didn't say, I won't send you any lions and bears. I'll stop them coming. But he does keep David from harm. He did give David that he made it possible for him to even overcome wild animals single-handedly with his bare hands. God gets the credit for making that possible and for saving him. Like the Israelites and Saul, some of us are so focused on hoping that our circumstances will change that we're missing out on the maturing moment that God has for us, which is to instead look at the God who never changes. There is no circumstance too great, no sickness too prevalent, no mental health illness too ingrained, no decision too difficult, no financial situation too poor, no giant too big for our God. Do you believe that? doesn't matter if our circumstances change. It doesn't matter if they're worse than last time because God doesn't change. And that's what David grasps. He gets that to God, Goliath is the same as the challenges that he faces in his job on a day-to-day basis. To him, it's no different from lions and bears because his God hasn't changed. And God hasn't changed his mind about blessing and loving and protecting his child. Can you say the same? Can you see how God is saving you every day? Have you even ever asked him to, allowed him to? Maybe you're not sure that he actually exists. Never mind whether you can have faith that he can save you or needs to save you. Maybe you're more like Saul. So Saul's common theme throughout his story is denial. He's the king who disobeys God and ignores God and then kind of tries to style it out like his idea was more holy or more reasonable or better than God's all the time. He's always the one who wants to save face. So there's moments where lots of people start to leave Saul and they're like, ah, this guy, I'm not sure about him. And Saul abandons all faithfulness to God, any of the commands that God has given him in order to please the people and keep them with him. How familiar does that sound? Saul's a people pleaser. Reading about Saul is like looking in a mirror. Maybe like him, you're camped out in the battle lines of your life and you and your whole world are facing enslavement and destruction and you don't even know it. You're just hoping to style it out. You're just hoping no one else is going to notice. And I've done that before. I do that regularly. I've been there where I've walked into situations and relationships and attitudes or just habits with my eyes wide open, but really I was blind to how they could take me down 
or sell me out or make me give up? Or are you like David, who's so used to relying on God that when the life-threatening, nation-threatening challenges come, he doesn't even need the king's armor. Go to verses 39 to 40. He says, Saul's put him in all this armor, but he says, I don't need special skills. I don't need special attention because I am so used to the presence and the goodness of God. I don't need anything else. In fact, other stuff kind of hinders me. The world's going, put this on. It's a sensible solution. Protect yourself. Look after yourself. Don't take risks. And David says, I'm not used to that. I'm just used to standing and who God is. Oh, if we could get used to that level of faith, that maturity. It's taking risks on this daily basis, but for Jesus. And it's facing lions and bears in your job, in your humdrum life, but being so trusting of God that it becomes your normal and Goliath is just a bump in the road. Some of us here need to put that into practice, including me. We need to practice trusting God with the lions and bears, the daily challenges in our lives. Because otherwise, how can we ever step into the kingship and the calling and the big, brave life that God has anointed us for? Some of you might be thinking, I'm not really sure you keep going, you need to do this thing. We need to practice it. And some of you are feeling conviction or a sense of guilt. So I'm just going to say now, don't let that slip into shame. I'm not saying you're a bad person or you're bad, and that isn't what God's saying. Let this rise into conviction, that sense of being like, oh, I need to do something different. This doesn't work. I need to change. It's, it's having, conviction is having hope and knowing that you're loved and therefore stepping up into what God is asking you to do. So let's not beat ourselves up about something that God isn't beating us up about. God is the hero of the story. God is the one who saves. So our response is to let him save us Again, I'm not just talking about uh, when you signed on the dotted line and you prayed the prayer and you became a Christian. I'm saying that every single day, all of us need saving time and time again. God's mercies are new every morning, he says. And if he says that, that means there must need to be new. Because I don't think you've been perfect since yesterday. All of us need new mercy. All of us need saving every day. All of us need to go, Jesus, I need you again. I need your rescue. I need your help. So for some of us, you've never asked God to save you. You've never called on him for help like David did. And today's the day to invite him in for the first time. I know we're talking about maturity, but today's the day where you go, um, yes, God, rescue me. Let tomorrow be the day that you said, God will continue to save me like he did yesterday. Don't be like Saul who was oblivious to the destruction he was bringing upon himself and he was in denial. So you can join in this response with us now. And I think pretty much all of us have a response to make. The beautiful thing about God calling us into maturity is that no one is nailing it. No one's there. You can't just reach maturity. There's always more to find. We all have a way to go and we can all mature more. So it's, it's for all of us. I think the call is, are you used to God saving you like David was am I are you like yeah I'm 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 not used to the things of the world I'm I'm used to God or whether we keep stepping in with our armor and stepping in with our stuff to try and rescue ourselves or justify ourselves or make ourselves feel better and the call is are we looking for our circumstances to change or are we looking at the God who never changes 
Are we asking God to just disappear what's in front of us? Or are we trusting him as we step forward? So we're going to lay down our armor like David did to say, God, I want to get used to relying on you. I want to be so used to you rescuing me every day that every expectation or protection or armor or solution that the world tries to dress me in or I try to dress myself in, it doesn't fit because actually knowing you and looking at you is all I need. Would you stand with me?